Chapter 8 of the Border Legion by Zane Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. In three days, during which time Joan attended Kells as faithfully as if she were indeed his wife, he thought that he had gained sufficiently to undertake the journey to the main camp, Cabin Gulch. He was eager to get back there and imperious in his overruling of any opposition. The men could take turns at propping him in a saddle. So on the morning of the fourth day, they packed for the ride. During these few days, Joan had verified her suspicion that Kells had two sides to his character, or it seemed rather that her presence developed a latent or a long-dead side. When she was with him, thereby distracting his attention, he was entirely different from what he was when his men surrounded him. Apparently he had no knowledge of this. He showed surprise and gratitude at Joan's kindness, though never pity or compassion for her. That he had become infatuated with her, Joan could no longer doubt. His strange eyes followed her. There was a dreamy light in them. He was mostly silent with her. Before those few days had come to an end, he had developed two things, a reluctance to let Joan leave his sight and an intolerance of the presence of the other men, particularly Golden. Always Joan felt the eyes of these men upon her, mostly in unobtrusive glances, except Golden's. The giant studied her with slow, cavernous stare, without curiosity or speculation or admiration. Evidently a woman was a new and strange creature to him, and he was experiencing unfamiliar sensations. Whenever Joan accidentally met his gaze, for she avoided it as much as possible, she shuddered with sick memory of a story she had heard, how a huge and ferocious gorilla had stolen into an African village and run off with a white woman. She could not shake the memory, and it was this that made her kinder to Kells than otherwise would have been possible. All Joan's faculties sharpened in this period. She felt her own development, the beginning of a bitter and hard education, an instinctive assimilation of all that nature taught its wild people and creatures. The first thing in elemental life, self-preservation. Parallel in her heart and mind ran a hopeless despair and a driving, unquenchable spirit. The former was fear, the latter love. She believed beyond a doubt that she had doomed herself along with Jim Cleve. She felt that she had the courage, the power, the love to save him, if not herself. And the reason that she did not falter and fail in this terrible situation was because her despair, great as it was, did not equal her love. That morning, before being lifted upon his horse, Kells buckled on his gun belt. The sheath and full round of shells and the gun made this belt a burden for a weak man, and so Red Pierce insisted. But Kells laughed in his face. The men, always excepting Golden, were unfailing in kindness and care. Apparently they would have fought for Kells to the death. They were simple and direct in their rough feelings. But in Kells, Joan thought, was a character who was a product of this border wildness, yet one who could stand aloof from himself and see the possibilities, the unexpected, 
the meaning of that life. Kells knew that a man, and yet another, might show kindness and faithfulness one moment, but the very next, out of a manhood retrograde to the savage, out of the circumstance or chance, might respond to a primitive force far sunderer from thought or reason, and rise to unbridled action. Joan divined that Kells buckled on his gun to be ready to protect her, but his men never dreamed his motive. Kells was a strong, bad man, set among men like him, yet he was infinitely different because he had brains. On the start of the journey, Joan was instructed to ride before Kells and Pierce, who supported the leader in his saddle. The pack drivers and Batewood and Frenchie rode ahead. Golden held to the rear, and this order was preserved till noon, when the cavalcade halted for a rest in a shady, grassy, and well-watered nook. Kells was haggard, and his brow wet with clammy dew, and lined with pain, yet he was cheerful and patient. Still, he hurried the men through their tasks. In an hour the afternoon travel was begun. The canyon and its surroundings grew more rugged and of larger dimensions. Yet the trail appeared to get broader and better all the time. Joan noticed intersecting trails running down from side canyons and gulches. The descent was gradual and scarcely evident in any way, except in the running water and warmer air. Kells, tired before the middle of the afternoon, and he would have fallen from his saddle but for the support of his fellows. One by one they held him up, and it was not easy work to ride alongside holding him up. Joan observed that Golden did not offer his services. He seemed a part of this gang, yet not of it. Joan never lost a feeling of his presence behind her, and from time to time, when he rode closer, the feelings grew stronger. Toward the close of that afternoon, she became aware of Golden's strange attention, and when a halt was made for camp, she dreaded something nameless. This halt occurred early, before sunset, and had been necessitated by the fact that Kells was fainting. They laid him out on blankets with his head in his saddle. Joan tended him, and he recovered somewhat, though he lacked the usual keenness. It was a busy hour, with saddles, packs, horses, with wood to cut, and fire to build, and meal to cook. Kells drank thirstily, but refused food. Jody whispered, at an opportune moment, I'm only tired, dead for sleep. You stay beside me, wake me quick, if you want to. He closed his eyes wearily, without explaining, and soon slumbered. Joan did not choose to allow these men to see that she feared them or distrusted them or disliked them. She ate with them beside the fire, and this was their first opportunity to be close to her. The fact had an immediate and singular influence. Joan had no vanity, though she knew she was handsome. She forced herself to be pleasant, agreeable, even sweet. Their response was instant and growing. At first they were bold, then familiar and coarse. For years she had been used to rough men of the camps. These, however, were different, and their jokes and suggestions had no effect because they were beyond her. And when this became manifest to them, that aspect of their relation to her changed. 
She grasped the fact intuitively, and then she verified it by proof. Her heart beat strong and high. If she could hide her hate, her fear, her abhorrence, she could influence these wild men. But it all depended upon her charm, her strangeness, her femininity. Insensibly, they had been influenced, and it proved that in the worst of men there yet survived some good. Golden alone presented a contrast and a problem. He appeared aware of her presence while he sat there eating like a wolf, but it was as if she were only an object. The man watched as might have an animal. Her experience at the campfire meal inclined her to the belief that, if there were such a possibility as her being safe at all, it would be owing to an unconscious and friendly attitude toward the companions she had been forced to accept. Those men were pleased, stirred at being in her vicinity. Joan came to a melancholy and fearful cognizance of her attraction. While at home she seldom had borne upon her a reality that she was a woman, her place, her person, were merely natural. Here it was all different to these wild men, developed by loneliness, fierce-blooded, with pulses like whips, a woman was something that thrilled, charmed, soothed, that incited a strange, insatiable, inexplicable hunger for the very sight of her. They did not realize it, but Joan did. Presently Joan finished her supper and said, I'll go hobble my horse. He strays sometimes. Sure, I'll go, miss, said Batewood. He had never called her Mrs. Kells, but Joan believed he had not thought of the significance. Hardened old ruffian that he was, Joan regarded him as the best of a bad lot. He had lived long, and some of his life had not been bad. Let me go, added Pierce. No, thank you, I'll go myself, she replied. She took the rope hobble off her saddle and boldly swung down the trail. Suddenly she heard two or more of the men speak at once, and then, low and clear, Golden, where in the hell are you going? This was Red Pierce's voice. Joan glanced back. Golden had started down the trail after her. Her heart quaked, her knees shook, and she was ready to run back. Golden halted, then turned away, growling. He acted as if caught in something surprising to himself. We're on to you, Golden, continued Pierce, deliberately. Be careful, or we'll put Kells on. A booming, angry curse was the response. The men grouped closer, and a loud altercation followed. Joan almost ran down the trail and heard no more. If any one of them had started her way now, she would have plunged into the thickets like a frightened deer. Evidently, however, they meant to let her alone. Joan found her horse, and before hobbling him, she was assailed by a temptation to mount him and ride away. This she did not want to do, and would not do under any circumstances. Still, she could not prevent the natural instinctive impulse of a woman. She crossed to the other side of the brook and returned towards camp under the spruce and balsam trees. She did not hurry. It was good to be alone, out of sight of those violent men, away from that constant wearing physical proof of catastrophe. Nevertheless, she did not feel free or safe for a moment. She peered fearfully into the shadows of the rocks and the trees. 
and presently it was a relief to get back to the side of the sleeping Kells. He lay in a deep slumber of exhaustion. She arranged her own saddle and blankets near him, and prepared to meet the night as best she could. Instinctively, she took a position where in one swift snatch she could get possession of Kells's gun. It was about time of sunset, warm and still in the canyon, with rosy light fading upon the peaks. The men were all busy with one thing or another. Strange it was to see Golden, who Joan thought might be a shirker, did twice the work of any man, especially the heavy work. He seemed to enjoy carrying a log that would have overweighed two ordinary men. He was so huge, so active, so powerful, that it was fascinating to watch him. They built the campfire for the night, uncomfortably near Joan's position. However, remembering how cold the air would become later, she made no objection. Twilight set in, and the men, through for the day, gathered near the fire. Then Joan was not long in discovering that the situation had begun to impinge upon the feeling of each of these men. They looked at her differently. Some of them invented pretexts to approach her, to ask something, to offer service, anything, to get near her. A personal and individual note had been injected into the attitude of each. Intuitively, Joan guessed that Golden's arising to follow her had turned their eyes inward. Golden remained silent and inactive at the edge of the campfire circle of light which flickered fitfully around him, making him seem a huge, gloomy ape of a man. So far as Joan could tell, Golden never cast his eyes in her direction. That was a difference which left cause for reflection. Had that hulk of brawn and bone begun to think? Batewood's overtures to Joan were rough, but inexplicable to her because she dared not wholly trust him. And sure, miss, he had concluded in a hoarse whisper, we all know you ain't Kells's wife. That bandit wouldn't marry no woman. He's a woman-hater. He was famous for that over in California. He's run off with you, kidnapped you, that's sure. And Golden swears he shot his own men and was in turn shot by you. That bullet hole in his back was full of powder. There's liable to be a muss-up any time. Sure, miss. You'd better sneak off with me tonight when they're all asleep. I'll get grub and horses and take you off to some prospector's camp. Then you can get home. Joan only shook her head. Even if she could have felt trust in Wood, and she was of half a mind to believe him, it was too late. Whatever befell her mattered little, if in suffering she could save Jim Cleve from the ruin she had wrought. Since this wild experience of Jones had begun, she had been sick so many times, with raw and naked emotions hitherto unknown to her, that she believed she could not feel another new fear or torture. But these strange sensations grew by what they had been fed upon. The man called Frenchy was audacious, persistent, smiling, amorous-eyed, and rudely gallant. He cared no more for his companions than if they had not been there. He vied with Pierce in his attention, and the two of them discomfited the others. The situation might have been amusing, had it not been so terrible. 
always the portent was a shadow behind their interest and amiability and jealousy. Except for that one abrupt and sinister move of Golden's, that of a natural man beyond deceit, there was no word, no look, no act at which Joan could have been offended. They were joking, sarcastic, ironical, and sullen in their relation to each other. But to Joan each one presented what was naturally, or what he considered his kindest and most friendly front. A young and attractive woman had dropped into the camp of lonely wild men, and in their wild hearts was a rebirth of egotism, vanity, hunger for notice. They seemed as foolish as a lot of cock-grouse preening themselves and parading before a single female. Surely in some heart was born real brotherhood for a helpless girl in peril. Inevitably in some of them would burst a flame of passion as it had in Kells. Between this amiable contest for Joan's glances and replies, with its possibility of latent good to her, and the dark, lurking, unspoken meaning, such as lay in Golden's brooding, Joan found another new and sickening torture. "'Say, Frenchy, you're no ladies' man,' declared Red Pierce. "'And you, Bate, you're too old. Move, pass by, sachet.' Pierce good-naturedly, but deliberately, pushed the two men back. "'Sure she's Kell's lady, ain't she?' drawled Wood. "'Ain't you all forgetting that?' Kells is asleep or dead, replied Pierce, and he succeeded in getting the field to himself. Where'd you meet Kells anyway? he asked Joan, with his red face bending near hers. Joan had her part to play. It was difficult because she divined Pierce's curiosity held a trap to catch her in a falsehood. He knew, they all knew, she was not Kells' wife. But if she were a prisoner, she seemed a willing and contented one. The query that breathed in Pierce's presence was how was he to reconcile the fact of her submission with what he and his comrades had potently felt as her goodness. That doesn't concern anybody, replied Joan. Reckon not, said Pierce. Then he leaned nearer with intense face. What I want to know is Golden Wright. Did you shoot Kells? In the dusk, Joan reached back and clasped Kell's hand. For a man as weak and weary as he had been, it was remarkable how quickly a touch awakened him. He lifted his head. "'Hello, who's that?' he called out sharply. Pierce rose guardedly, startled but not confused. "'It's only me, boss,' he replied. "'I was about to turn in, and I wanted to know how you are, if I could do anything.' I'm all right, Red, replied Kells coolly. Clear out and let me alone, all of you. Pierce moved away with an amiable good night and joined the others at the campfire. Presently they sought their blankets, leaving Golden hunching there, silent in the gloom. Joan, why did you wake me? whispered Kells. Pierce asked me if I shot you, replied Joan. I woke you instead of answering him. He did, exclaimed Kells under his breath. Then he laughed. Can't fool that gang. I guess it doesn't matter. Maybe it'd be well if they knew you shot me. He appeared thoughtful and lay there with a fading flare of the fire on his pale face. But he did not speak again. Presently he fell asleep. 
Joan leaned back within reach of him, with her head in her saddle, and pulling a blanket up over her, relaxed her limbs to rest. Sleep seemed the furthest thing from her. She wondered that she dared to think of it. The night had grown chilly. The wind was sweeping with low roar through the balsams, and the fire burned dull and red. Joan watched the black, shapeless hulk that she knew to be golden. For a long time he remained motionless. By and by he moved, approached the fire, stood one moment in the dying, ruddy glow, his great breath and bulk magnified, with all about him vague and shadowy, but the more sinister for that. The cavernous eyes were only black spaces in that vast face. Yet Joan saw them upon her. He lay down then among the other men, and soon his deep and heavy breathing denoted the tranquil slumber of an ox. For hours through changing shadows and starlight, Joan lay awake while a thousand thoughts besieged her, all centering round that vital and compelling one of Jim Cleve. Only upon awakening with the sun in her face did Joan realize that she had actually slept. The camp was bustling with activity. The horses were in, fresh and quarrelsome, with ears laid back. Kells was sitting upon a rock near the fire with a cup of coffee in his hand. He was looking better. When he greeted Joan, his voice sounded stronger. She walked by Pierce and Frenchy and Golden on her way to the brook, but they took no notice of her. Bate Wood, however, touched his sombrero and said, "'Morning, miss.' Joan wondered if her memory of the preceding night were only a bad dream. There was a different atmosphere by daylight, and it was dominated by Kells. Presently she returned to camp refreshed and hungry. Golden was throwing a pack, which action he performed with ease and dexterity. Pierce was cinching her saddle. Kells was talking, more like his old self than any time since his injury. Soon they were on the trail. For Joan, time always passed swiftly on horseback. Movement and changing scene were pleasurable to her. The passing of time, now, held a strange expectancy, a mingled fear and hope and pain. For at the end of this trail was Jim Cleve. In other days she had flouted him, made fun of him, dominated him. Everything except loved and feared him. And now she was assured of her love and almost convinced of her fear. The reputation these wild bandits gave Jim was astounding and inexplicable to Joan. She rode the miles thinking of Jim, dreading to meet him, longing to see him, and praying and planning for him. About noon, the cavalcade rode out of the mouth of a canyon into a wide valley surrounded by high, rounded foothills. Horses and cattle were grazing on the green levels, a wide, shallow, Noisy stream split the valley. Joan could tell from the tracks at the crossing that this place, whatever and wherever it was, saw considerable travel, and she concluded the main rendezvous of the bandits was close at hand. The pack drivers led across the stream and the valley to enter an intersecting ravine. It was narrow, rough-sided, and floored, but the trail was good. Presently it opened into a beautiful, v-shaped gulch very different from the high-walled shut-in canyons it had a level floor through which a brook flowed and clumps of spruce and pine with here and there a giant balsam 
Huge patches of wildflowers gave rosy color to the grassy slopes. At the upper end of this gulch, Joan saw a number of widely separated cabins. This place, then, was Cabin Gulch. Upon reaching the first cabin, the cavalcade split up. There were men here who hallowed a welcome. Golden halted with his pack horse. Some of the others rode on. Wood drove other pack animals off to the right, up the gentle slope, and Red Pierce, who was beside Kells, instructed Joan to follow them. They rode up to a bench of straggling spruce trees, in the midst of which stood a large log cabin. It was new, as in fact all the structures in that gulch appeared to be, and none of them had seen a winter. The chinks between the logs were yet open. The cabin was of the rudest make of notched logs, one upon another, and a roof of brush and earth. It was low and flat, but very long, and extending before the whole of it was a porch roof supported by posts. At one end was a corral. There were doors and windows with nothing in them. Upon the front wall, outside, hung saddles and bridles. Joan had a swift, sharp gaze for the men who rose from their lounging to greet the travelers. Jim Cleve was not among them. Her heart left her throat then, and she breathed easier. How could she meet him? Kells was in better shape than at noon of the preceding day. Still, he had to be lifted off his horse. Joan heard all the men talking at once. They crowded round Pierce, each lending a hand. However, Kells appeared able to walk into the cabin. It was Batewood who led Joan inside. There was a long room with stone fireplace, rude benches, and a table, skins and blankets on the floor, lanterns and weapons on the wall. At one end Joan saw a litter of cooking utensils and shelves of supplies. Suddenly Kell's impatient voice silenced the clamor of questions. I'm not hurt, he said. I'm all right, only weak and tired. Fellas, this girl is my wife. Joan, you'll find a room there at the back of the cabin. Make yourself comfortable. Joan was only too glad to act upon his suggestion. A door had been cut through the back wall. It was covered with a blanket. When she swept this aside, she came upon several steep steps that led up to a smaller, lighter cabin of two rooms, separated by a partition of boughs. She dropped the blanket behind her and went up the steps. Then she saw that the new cabin had been built against an old one. It had no door or opening except the one by which she had entered. It was light, because the chinks between the logs were open. The furnishings were a wide bench of boughs, covered with blankets, a shelf with a blurred and cracked mirror hanging above it, a table made of boxes and a lantern. This room was four feet higher than the floor of the other cabin, and at the bottom of the steps leaned half a dozen slender, trimmed poles. She gathered presently that these poles were intended to be slipped under cross pieces above and fastened by a bar below, which means effectually barricaded the opening. Joan could stand at the head of the steps and peep under an edge of the swinging blanket into the large room. But that was the only place she could see through, for the openings between the logs of each wall were not level. These quarters were comfortable, private, and could be shut off from intruders. 
Joan had not expected so much consideration from Kells, and she was grateful. She lay down to rest and think. It was really very pleasant here. There were birds nesting in the chinks. A ground squirrel ran along one of the logs and chirped at her. Through an opening near her face, she saw a wild rosebush and the green slope of the gulch. A soft, warm, fragrant breeze blew in, stirring her hair. How strange that there could be beautiful and pleasant things here in this robber's den. That time was the same here as elsewhere, that the sun shone and the sky gleamed blue. Presently she discovered that a lassitude weighed upon her and she could not keep her eyes open. She ceased trying, but intended to remain awake, to think, to listen, to wait. Nevertheless, she did fall asleep and did not awaken till disturbed by some noise. The color of the western sky told her that the afternoon was far spent. She had slept hours. Someone was knocking. She got up and drew aside the blanket. Batewood was standing near the door. Now, miss, I've supper ready, he said, and I was reckoning you'd like me to fetch yours. Yes, thank you, I would, replied Joan. In a few moments, Woods returned, carrying the top of a box, upon which were steaming pans and cups. He handed this rude tray up to Joan. Sure, I'm a first-rate cook, miss, when I've something to cook, he said with a smile that changed his hard face. She returned the smile with her thanks. Evidently, Kells had a well-filled larder, and as Joan had fared on coarse and hard food for long, this supper was a luxury and exceedingly appetizing. While she was eating, the blanket curtain moved aside and Kells appeared. He dropped it behind him, but did not step up into the room. He was in his shirt sleeves, had been clean-shaven, and looked a different man. "'How do you like your home?' he inquired, with a hint of his former mockery. "'I'm grateful for the privacy,' she replied. "'You think you could be worse off, then?' "'I know it. Suppose Golden kills me, and rules the gang, and takes you. There's a story about him, the worst I've heard on this border. I'll tell you some day when I want to scare you bad.' Golden. Joan shivered as she pronounced the name. Are you and he enemies? No man can have a friend on this border. We flock together like buzzards. There's safety in numbers, but we fight together like buzzards over carrion. Kells, you hate this life? I've always hated my life, everywhere. The only life I ever loved was adventure. I'm willing to try a new one, if you'll go with me. Joan shook her head. Why not? I'll marry you, he went on, speaking lower. I've got gold. I'll get more. Where did you get the gold, she asked. I relieved a good many overburdened travelers and prospectors, he replied. Kells, you're a, a villain, exclaimed Joan, unable to contain her sudden heat. You must be utterly mad to ask me to marry you. No, I'm not mad, he rejoined with a laugh. Golden's the mad one. He's crazy. He's got a twist in his brain. I'm no fool. I've only lost my head over you. But compare Mary and me, living and traveling among decent people, and comfort, to camps like this. If I don't get drunk, I'll be half decent to you. But I'll get shot sooner or later. Then you'll be left to Golden. 
Why do you say him, she queried, in a shudder of curiosity. Well, Golden haunts me. He does me, too. He makes me lose my sense of proportion. Beside him, you and the others seem good, but you are wicked. Then you won't marry me and go away somewhere? Your choice is strange, because I tell you the truth. Kells, I'm a woman. Something deep in me says, you won't keep me here. You can't be so base. Not now, after I saved your life. It would be horrible, inhuman. I can't believe any man born of a woman could do it. But I want you. I love you, he said, low and hard. Love? That's not love, she replied in scorn. God only knows what it is. Call it what you like, he went on bitterly. You're a young, beautiful, sweet woman. It's wonderful to be near you. My life has been hell. I've had nothing. There's only hell to look forward to, and hell at the end. Why shouldn't I keep you here? But Kells, listen, she whispered earnestly. Suppose I am young and beautiful and sweet, as you said. I'm utterly in your power. I'm compelled to seek your protection from even worse men. You're different from these others. You're educated. You must have had a, a good mother. Now you're bitter, desperate, terrible. You hate life. You seem to think this charm you see in me will bring you something. Maybe a glimpse of joy. But how can it? You know better. How can it? Unless I, I love you. Kell stared at her. The evil and hardness of his passion corded in his face, and the shadows of comprehending thought in his strange eyes showed the other side of the man. He was still staring at her while he reached to put aside the curtain. Then he dropped his head and went out. Joan sat motionless, watching the door where he had disappeared, listening to the mounting beats of her heart. She had only been frank and earnest with Kells. But he had taken a meeting from her last few words that she had not intended to convey. All that was woman in her, mounting, writing, hating, leaped to the power she sensed in herself. If she could be deceitful, cunning, shameless, in holding out to Kells a possible return of his love, she could do anything with him. She knew it. She did not need to marry him or sacrifice herself. Joan was amazed that the idea remained an instant before her consciousness, but something had told her that this was another kind of life that she had known, and all that was precious to her hung in the balance. A falsity was justifiable, even righteous, under the circumstances. Could she formulate a plan that this keen bandit would not see through? The remotest possibility of her even caring for Kells? That was as much as she dared hint. But that, together with all the charm and seductiveness she could summon, might be enough. Dared she try it? If she tried and failed, Kells would despise her. And then she was utterly lost. She was caught between doubt and hope. All that was natural and true in her shrank from such unwomanly deception. And all that had been born of her wild experience inflamed her to play the game, to match Kells's villainy with a woman's unfathomable duplicity. And while Joan was absorbed in thought, the sun set. The light failed, twilight stole into the cabin, and then darkness. All this hour there had been a continual sound of men's voices in the large cabin, sometimes low and at other times loud. 
It was only when Joan distinctly heard the name Jim Cleve that she was startled out of her absorption, thrilling and flushing. In her eagerness, she nearly fell as she stepped and groped through the darkness to the door, and as she drew aside the blanket, her hand shook. The large room was lighted by a fire and half a dozen lanterns. Through a faint tinge of blue smoke, Joan saw men standing and sitting and lounging around Kells, who had a seat where the light fell full upon him. Evidently a lull had intervened in the talk. The dark faces Joan could see were all turned toward the door expectantly. "'Bring him in, Bate, and let's look him over,' said Kells. Then Bate Wood appeared, elbowing his way in, and he had his hand on the arm of a tall, lithe fellow. When they got into the light, Joan quivered as if she had been stabbed. The stranger with Wood was Jim Cleve. Jim Cleve in frame and feature, yet not the same she knew. Cleve, glad to meet you, greeted Kells, extending his hand. Thanks, same to you, replied Cleve, and he met the proffered hand. His voice was cold and colorless, unfamiliar to Joan. Was this man really Jim Cleve? The meeting of Kells and Cleve was significant because of Kells's interest and the silent attention of the men of his clan. It did not seem to mean anything to the white-faced, tragic-eyed Cleve. Joan gazed at him with utter amazement. She remembered a heavily-built, florid Jim Cleve, an overgrown boy with a good-natured, lazy smile on his full face and sleepy eyes. She all but failed to recognize him in the man who stood there now, lithe and powerful, with muscles bulging in his coarse white shirt. Joan's gaze swept over him up and down, shivering at the two heavy guns he packed, till it was transfixed on his face. The old, or the other Jim Cleve, had been homely, with too much flesh on his face to show force or fire. This man seemed beautiful. But it was a beauty of tragedy. He was white as Kells, but smoothly, purely white, without shadow or sunburn. His lips seemed to have set with a bitter, indifferent laugh. His eyes looked straight out, piercing, intent, haunted, and as dark as night. Great blue circles lay under them, lending still further depth and mystery. It was a sad, reckless face that wrung Joan's very heartstrings. She had come too late to save his happiness, but she prayed that it was not too late to save his honor and his soul. While she gazed, there had been further exchange of speech between Kells and Cleve, and she had heard, though not distinguished, what was said. Kells was unmistakably friendly, as were the other men within range of Joan's sight. Cleve was surrounded. There were jesting and laughter, and then he was led to the long table, where several men were already gambling. Joan dropped the curtain, and in the darkness of her cabin, she saw that white, haunting face, and when she covered her eyes, she still saw it. The pain, the reckless violence, the hopeless indifference, the wreck and ruin in that face had been her doing. Why? How had Jim Cleve wronged her? He had loved her at her displeasure, and had kissed her against her will. She had furiously unbraided him, and when he had finally turned upon her, threatening to prove he was no coward, she had scorned him with a girl's merciless injustice. 
All her strength and resolve left her momentarily after seeing Jim there. Like a woman, she weakened. She lay on the bed and writhed. Doubt, hopelessness, despair again seized upon her, and some strange, yearning, maddening emotion. What had she sacrificed? His happiness and her own, and both their lives? The clamor in the other cabin grew so boisterous that suddenly, when it stilled, Joan was brought sharply to the significance of it. Again she drew aside the curtain and peered out. Golden, huge, stolid, gloomy, was entering the cabin. The man fell into the circle and faced Kells, with the firelight dancing in his cavernous eyes. "'Hello, Golden,' said Kells coolly. "'What ails you?' "'Anybody tell you about Bill Bailey?' asked Golden, heavily. Kells did not show the least concern. "'Tell me what?' "'That he died in a cabin down in the valley.' Kells gave a slight start, and his eyes narrowed, and shot steely glints. "'No, it's news to me.' "'Kells, you left Bailey for dead, but he lived. He was shot through, but he got there somehow. Nobody knows. He was far gone when Beatty Jones happened along. Before he died, he sent word to me by Beatty. Are you curious to know what it was?' Not the least, replied Kells. Bailey was, well, offensive to my wife. I shot him. He swore you drew on him in cold blood, thundered Golden. He swore it was for nothing, just so you could be alone with that girl. Kells rose in wonderful calmness, with only his pallor and a slight shaking of his hands to betray excitement. An uneasy stir and murmur ran through the room. Red Pierce, nearest at hand, stepped to Kell's side. All in a moment there was a deadly surcharged atmosphere there. Well, he swore right. Now, what's it to you? Apparently the fact and its confession were nothing particular to Golden, or else he was deep, or all considered him only dense and shallow. It's done. Bill's dead, continued Golden. But why do you double-cross the gang? What's the game? You never did it before. That girl isn't your... Shut up, hissed Kells. Like a flash, his hand flew out with his gun, and all about him was dark menace. Golden made no attempt to draw. He did not show surprise, nor fear, nor any emotion. He appeared plodding in mind. Red Pierce stepped between Kells and Golden. There was a realization in the crowd, loud breaths, scraping of feet. Golden turned away. Then Kells resumed his seat and his pipe, as if nothing out of the ordinary had occurred. End of chapter 8